welcome to another episode of Beside the Author with me, Renika, your host and narrator. I deep dive into the books alongside the actual author in an in-depth study so you as current or future readers can get a deeper understanding of the author's intended message. In this season, we're examining a book called The Hidden Tree by Valton Brown. The Hidden Tree is a book that examines societal philosophies, ideas and inventions to expose and discuss the historical, out-of-sight root system that is fueling the largest global transition since the Industrial Revolution. A round of applause, please, for Valton Brown. Hello, Valton. Hello, and thank you for having me back again. That is okay. It's always great to have you with us. And um, yeah, brilliant. (laughs) And last week, we discussed chapter two, the soil, the blood of Abel, where we explored how the soil represented the heart condition and slavery, which was the preparation ground for the counterfeit seed and the new era. Today, we'll be going through chapter three, the root system. Over to you, Valton, for a brief overview. And like last time, if you can just give your thoughts, if a reader has never opened up this chapter before, with minimal spoilers. Okay. Well, this is a progression from the previous two, obviously. So we're looking at what I call the root system. So we've moved on from the seed that was planted in a soil, which we discussed in previous episodes. Now we're looking at the growth of that seed and and what it represents. So the root system now begins to branch out. Where is it beginning to go? What is it? Which, again, is important at the beginning of this book to grasp because there's a lot of detail later. Yeah, so it's the starting point. And unlike previous chapters, this chapter really catapults us into the centre of historical tapestry. Old concepts, new developments and missing pieces. That's how I saw it when I was reading this chapter. And like you said, and we've both been saying last episode, we were looking at the counterfeit seed, but this chapter goes in a bit more detail. Could you please expand on the core makeup of this counterfeit seed? The, the seed itself, I think we discussed previously that it is Darwinism or the theory of evolution. It encapsulates everything that was before it. For example, there were other people that had their own ideas about how we were created or how we came into being, how animal life and human life are connected, etc., etc. But this seed, evolution, Darwinism, became literally the, the point at which all those ideas could pin themselves to something or be wrapped up in something that was uniformed in its presentation. So, of course, that gave it some kind of legitimacy that's the idea of describing it as the seed. It gives it legitimacy. And then it takes a hold because it's planted at a specific time in our history when we had literally been in a, uh, a global business of slavery. And, and that, although this book isn't about race, it does have to deal with the issue of slavery and, and race because that comes into the mix in terms of determining the type of ground that this seed is, is planted into. Yeah, and just expanding a bit more off what you were saying there, because last time we said the, that slavery was the soil mm. and it also represented the heart condition yeah. of everyone. 
Um, but why would you say that evolution now at this point, besides slavery, was so palatable to the audience? Well, because evolution was something that always sat there, but there were all sorts of ideas that were floating around as well. And it was usually because of the issue of slavery, as I say, during that period, during the time of trading in people, there were a lot of things that had to be given approval. Now, if you're a Christian, you're a reverend um, or other who has a congregation, but your some of your income comes from the slave trade, how do you justify that? So you would find preachers who would actually use the Bible to give credibility to the fact that these people that are being used for the slave trade and were working in the plantations, they were lesser than the congregation in terms of their status as human beings. So you find that happened across different areas of society, whatever area it may be, whether that's uh, medicine, um, religion, uh, politics, it literally permeated every aspect of society in terms of preparing the hearts of people. So then evolution, which was now considered to be a new concept, even though it had been around for a while, now suddenly found itself finding credibility amongst all different aspects of society because people were already looking for something to prove that what they were saying was true. Whether you were that preacher or politician or doctor, people were looking for this. It's no different to now. We do the same thing. We, we constantly try to pin our ideas on something that someone else has said. And we go, ah, there you go. I told you it was true what I was saying. And that's what we were looking at. Yeah. And you pull out that there was like a scientific credence yeah. that evolution had attached to it. And would you say that's also a part of the reason why the audience were ready yeah. to take on this theory absolutely yeah because it, it was now deemed to be scientific in some sort of way it was measurable provable and someone had come up with a way of describing how humanity had evolved but also begin to kind of demonstrate it through their theories and of course with uh, charles darwin having looked at the animal kingdom and then attached the way that the animal kingdom worked to the way human beings have evolved Who's going to argue with that at that time? We didn't have DNA testing. We, don't, we didn't have the sort of technology we have today or the thinking that we have today. Not that I put a lot of credence in that mm -hmm. either these days. But um, yeah, it now was beginning to take on the form of being scientific. It had the image. And Charles Darwin, whether he liked it or not, became the brand face. So now people were going, aha, we've been talking about this for a long time. We've been saying that there are differences between particular cultures and people and types and, and what have you, here is the scientific evidence to show that evolution and how it is about the survival of the fittest. And even with this seed, because like we were saying, just to remind and keep everyone on the same track, that evolution is this counterfeit seed that was planted in the soil. This seed, you then say, this is where Darwinism grew from a seed into an established root system called social Darwinism. So we're bringing in a new concept now, yeah. a new idea attached on the back of Darwinism. What is social Darwinism? Well, social Darwinism, to put it simply, is the application of this theory to human beings. So instead of it being a theory that was applied to the animal kingdom and how um, stronger 
creatures would be around longer because of the way that they supposed to have evolved and and how they develop as creatures now it was being applied to human beings well if the animal kingdom works like this this is the thinking behind it and if we have certain uh, creatures that are now extinct and others that survived then that same um, theory must be applicable to human beings and so now it begins to take on that form where people are saying yeah, well, we always thought that there was something about this in the human makeup and the differences of cultures and nations. So applying Darwinism, applying this theory of evolution to human beings was really the final stage of cementing it into the minds and hearts of, of the world, really. And, and that's when it became evident that evolution was really going to challenge the thinking that was before. Much of what we had around that time, if you took evolution out of the picture then you would be looking at people that believe there was a god and there was no question about that but then examining the world around us based on that lens whereas evolution now was changing that it gave people who didn't believe in god the opportunity to look at an alternative theory about how we came into being and those two tracks run parallel with each other right the way through the book and in our history as well yeah, and not trying to ruin some of the words in this chapter, because I definitely recommend our listeners to take a read, because it will go into more depth about how social Darwinism impacted the thinking at the time. But it really was a, a theory from how you've written in this chapter that allowed there to be credence to divisions, divisions yeah. of people, divisions of status, and things like that, which is really scary in some ways to see. Yeah. Uh, and when I was uh, looking into this and thinking about it from my own personal perspective, because there were questions I had around the whole issue of evolution for a long time, and usually the argument would be you either believe in creation or you believe in evolution. And then each side would go into the scientific evidence of and the proof of and then use the Bible as a way of saying, well, yeah, this is why we believe it. The science demonstrates that what God said here is right and so forth and so on. But for me, it was actually about stripping all that away because if fundamentally the theory is just a theory and it has no grounds or legitimacy from anything that you could claim to be scientific, and also it had issues around race, which for me was a major issue, then why would I even consider it as being legitimate? Why would I think it's authentic? So it's really going back to the very basics of the idea and seeing where it came from to determine whether or not it has anything that holds up in the light of truth. Yeah, and your whole this whole book seems to be like that. Let's go back to the source, see where it came from, to then see if the evidence of what has grown yeah, it's, is real. It's really based on good hermeneutics, really. So if you were reading the Bible, you know, the, the tendency is to read what we call the New Testament and ignore what was before it. And that really isn't the, the best way of studying because what is written later is the result of what was before. So that same application was um, given to the whole makeup of this book. It's the way that it was approached because I didn't want to put in my own thoughts and ideas, even though I had them, but I wanted the evidence to speak for itself and the conclusions to be um, the result of those pieces being put together, almost like a jigsaw. You accept what you see when the jigsaw is finished. Yeah, it's a really great metaphor. So, okay, Valton, let's switch tracks, right? Yeah, sure. 
let's step back and look at the context of this chapter because you were writing about the 18th to 19th century first and second industrial revolution and you really emphasize self-determination as a key philosophy of the time. Let me just read a little snippet from page 35. Either way the world had now entered a new era where self-determination was king. Humanity had relinquished a duty of care to its fellow human being while simultaneously abdicating accountability to a creator. The resounding question was, why care for the weak? So my question to you, Valton, is what was the societal impact of this new way of thinking? I suppose the best way for me to answer that is that when I um, was looking at this particular chapter, it became very clear to me that there was something important about what we call revolutions. When something happens that a generation is moved into another phase of, of its existence, you know, and it became very clear that during what we termed the industrial revolution, that it was also the point at which new thinking was birthed or literally, uh, intellectualism became a major emphasis. This theory of evolution, which is a pseudoscience, it's not science at all, really, became a new philosophy, although it was an old one. But also there was an explosion of inventions. There was an expression that went on for, I mean, when you look at the number of inventions during this period of time, it, it was just mind-boggling, really. So what I very quickly, or what came to me very quickly about this is that this particular point in history was marked by the activity around it. You know, as I said, the inventions, the thinking, the throwing off of Christian theology, the throwing off of the idea of God, but now taking humanity as being at the center because, no, God could never have created us. We're too clever. We must have come about some other way. This alternative thinking marked this transition. And that's where we also see that there is this um, aligning of man versus machine. So what we have now created in the Industrial Revolution, which is machinery, steam engines, and all these different things that have now come to birth, they are now changing the way that we live. So people that were farmers are losing their trade. They can't look after their families independently. They're having to now move into the cities to find work, which is then where we have the slums that we read about in um, Charles Dickens and other, other novels. So we have the, the slums that they now live in because they don't have opportunity and they're having to rely on those that have the means to give them work so they can feed their families. So this is massive move and it's, it's a, a global transition as far as I can see that changed and almost switched humanity over into another kind of existence. And this is a pattern that I noticed over and over again and you'll see it go uh, throughout the, the pages of the book. So I'd, I'd encourage you get into this part of the information because it's going to be so important to understand what those transitions are later as well. Yeah, and you also bring in the Babel account in the Bible. So the Babel account is when the, the humanity at the yeah. time started to build a tower into the heavens to demonstrate their intellect, to demonstrate their uh, prowess, yes. and that they could almost be like God or were God. 
should I say, and they challenging the heavens. That's pretty much the premise of Babel. And you brought that in almost as like a reflection. Absolutely. Yeah, because it's a pushback. It's a pushback. If you follow the, the account from Genesis right through to that point where Babel was established, you see that the heart of man, the, the ideas, their intellect was all about themselves. They want to be in a position of influence. They want to call or create their own future and their own destiny. They want to be the ones in charge, if you like. So everything they were doing was really about them. And so self-determination is really encapsulated in that image of people that will eventually come together to try and forge or create a world that they made that reflects their power, their intelligence, their superiority. And this is why God caused the language of that group of people to be changed so that they couldn't communicate with each other because he understood that this thinking that started in the garden where Satan offered an alternative to say you can become like gods or you can become godlike or become a god, it continued and it's, it's never stopped, which is the reason why God gives us choices. But we really have to understand, you know, you might think you don't have a religious belief or any kind of leaning that way, but by the fact that you believe in self-determination, that in itself is a belief. And even just listening to the conversation, I can tell probably as listeners, they'll be like, well, who, who were these exact people? And I just want to tell you as listeners in the next chapter, in our next episode, we'll be starting to go into some of these key characters so you can pin some of this context and background into the thinking of actual individuals so that you can really see it within this wider tapestry. And Valton, so we've looked now at what the counterfeit seed was. We've looked at its societal impact, how it helped birth social Darwinism, how people are seeing how self-determination is driving them to do new inventions, um, new or old way of thinking, should we say, yes. of being top intellectuals. And we're seeing the shift. We're seeing the industrial revolutions. Now, we're coming to a point where you take a switch in the chapter. So you've moved from this era that we've just been talking about and you start talking about a missing chronicle of history. You touch on, basically, you touch on topics around the Jewish community. You touch on topics like antisemitism, Gnosticism and the distancing of the biblical faith from the Jewish community. It's a really unusual switch in the middle of this chapter. So I wanted to ask you, what were you trying to convey to the readers surrounding these topics? Well, I think it was important to begin to drip feed the real purpose of these kinds of philosophies. Now, the, the theory of evolution is probably the one that uh, stuck with us and has, has really informed everything that we think, everything we say, everything we do. In fact, it's, it permeated and has permeated through every aspect of society. You can't switch on a documentary about the animal kingdom without there being some kind of reference to evolution. That there's always this connection. If you, you look at medicine, for example, again, there's uh, an emphasis on the heritage the, or the foreparents of the person that's being looked at to determine what would have been hereditary in their health. Okay? So evolution was permeating everything. Now, when you look very closely at this theory, 
bearing in mind that the book is written from a biblical worldview, so I'm attempting to show the audience, show the reader, what is missing in this story when you look at it from a biblical context. Each time that you uh, observe the writer, the speaker, within the context of evolution, you see that there is something about it that is kind of alluding to the fact that the Jewish community is um, lesser than anybody else. Again, it's something that comes out through things like immigration and, and uh, those subjects. But the theory itself distances itself from what would be the biblical faith, the biblical worldview. And that shouldn't be a surprise because it is anti, the, it's the opposite to the Bible. It's saying God didn't create the world. We evolved from one single source, and over time, the superior, fitter, more intelligent, healthier human beings have survived. And the lesser, yes, haven't. Although that is a problem in itself, because later they realized that, that what they considered to be the lesser society were actually growing in number. So the theory began to fall down there, you see. And they took steps to, to deal with that. But there is an anti Semitic emphasis within the thinking of, of this movement. Uh, we get from the theory of evolution people that were, uh, they were heavily into philosophy. So in Derby City, again, without giving too much away, we had the philosophical society that was established. And for anyone that knows about Derby itself, the Jewish community that was here was excommunicated and laws were adapted to ensure they couldn't own property. So there is a direct connection between anti-Semitism and the theory of evolution, which many might argue against, but that's what I saw. And especially when it begins to unfold and you see the real face of it, that's when you begin to realize, aha. So what we saw at the root, what we saw at the seed, what we saw in slavery is now manifesting itself in a way that's so public and so in your face that uh, it's hard to ignore it unless you choose to, that is. So what you're saying here is that the switch in this chapter is to showcase that there is a connection all the way through, like in the Bible, to the Jewish community yeah. and that there are other ideas that are hidden within the theory of evolution and the surrounding characters that have perpetuated. Yeah this yeah. ideology yeah if i could put it mm. um maybe clarify it some more we really only have two main schools of thought okay we have the biblical worldview and the school of thought that is not the biblical worldview anything that falls into the not the biblical worldview is opposed to the biblical worldview okay it sounds quite simple but it's, it's just the way it is so what you can see in that, which says the God of the Bible does not exist, what he said is not true, usually you will find a pattern of beliefs that say, well, if that's the case, then the Jewish community are not, they're nothing special, they're just another group of people in the world. And so there's something about that whole movement that just cannot bear the fact that there is a Jewish representation on planet Earth just absolutely abhorrent to it. And so from the, we, we're talking about the evolution, but there are offshoots of the same theory and the, in this world of philosophy 
that claim to have their own ideas about how the world began and what we need to be doing and how we're supposed to live. But again, at the core is an anti-Semitic mind. And that keeps on coming up over and over again. And is this why then that you emphasised the ideologies of Marcion? Yes. Who yes. was perpetuating Gnostic ideas. Was it Gnostic ideas? Yes. Yeah, because there were different individuals, again, who attempted to create their own version of what they think is, uh, I don't know if you can call it the faith, but it's some kind of a spiritual belief. And what did they do? They literally dissected the Hebrew scriptures, and which we refer to as the Old Testament. I don't really like that term so much, but it's what we um, use to understand the first part of the Bible uh, in this culture. And so they literally dissected it. What did they do when they dissected it? Well, they were distancing the reader from its Jewish origin. Sad to say, the Bible is the Bible. It, it started with Hebrew scriptures. It's full of Hebrew thinking. It has Jewish disciples. Yeshua himself, Jesus himself says, to the Jew first when he, he came to restore the broken covenant. He understood as a rabbi, which he was, born a Jew, raised a Jew, died a Jew, resurrected a Jew. There's this whole issue of philosophy against biblical worldview will always have the Jewish question at the heart of it. And that's when you can, if you're looking for clues, find out if what you're in actually believes that, that the Jewish people are a people like any other nation and they should have an existence here on earth. Yeah, and you round off the end of that whole segment with this paragraph. I'd like to read it as well because it will just give even more context, I believe, to our listeners. So on page 45, you say Rome was central to this anti-Jewish sentiment and continued to fuel the fire of anti-Semitism for centuries later. Also, the machine of propaganda continued to reinforce a stereotype about the Jewish person to illegally release them of their God-given responsibility to teach the Gentile world about the God of Israel and his Messiah. Of course, with all such attempts, inevitably, freedoms are also removed, and other places of liberation are sought by the victim of such propaganda. As a result of this flagrant mindset, the Jewish community were almost erased from the pages of history during the 18 to 1900s, and no one seemed to notice. So, again, you were saying, because of these philosophies, everybody's trying to distance themselves from the community that is the reflection in the heart of God. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what you've just read here, it will be explained later as to why the Jewish community was almost wiped off the face of the earth and it was almost as though, oh, well, we didn't even notice that that was the case. But why is this so important? It's because if I'm a person of faith and I believe in Yeshua Jesus in the Bible, if I believe that the Hebrew Scriptures the Torah, the Tanakh, all the books in the Bible are legitimate texts to govern how I live, then I have to answer that question about the Jewish community because at the heart of the covenant that God made is that community, the Jewish community, Israel. Now, it's very important to understand that, again, within the context of the Bible, this is not God saying these people are above and beyond the rest of the nations. No, what he's saying is, I have chosen these people who are not a people, made them into a nation, so that I could have them as a model to the rest of the nations. How am I supposed to live as a Gentile, someone who isn't Jewish? Well, the idea was that Israel was supposed to have followed and lived by the teachings of God 
So then, as Yeshua, Jesus said to the disciples, go ye into all the world, right? This wasn't a Western mission. It was a mission to the Jewish disciples to teach the nations about the God they didn't know. Philosophies that we're reading about here through evolution, uh, there's many others which get mapped out in the book. They are all designed by the same person who came to the first created beings in the garden and said, oh, you know, you can eat of the tree, it won't kill you, and you can be like gods. The same person that came up with that idea is the same one that's behind this theory, and his hallmarks, his fingerprints, will always be anti-God, anti-the covenant, anti-Israel. That's what, why it's so important to understand that the theory of evolution in itself, from the very root, has no place in, certainly not in my world and in my beliefs. Yeah, thank you, Valton. So let me just ask you this one final question for this chapter. When looking at the missing history and being unaware of certain events, you ask the readers this question when you're talking about the new mindset of the age on page 35. Yeah. You say, you may ask, how did we miss it? Surely, if this were true historically, it would have been taught in our education system. Mm. Let me ask the question back to you, Valton. How did we miss it? How did we miss the history that has impacted us so much today? Uh, that's very easy to answer, I think, because we've missed a lot in history. They say that history is written by the victors. So there's information that gets spray painted out of the whole story. So you look at some, for example, you, even in the world of architecture, you, could, you can see the hallmarks of people that design buildings. But who are the ones that built it? Like the White House. Who were the labor force that were killed while uh, building the bridges? That the engineers that we know about who are renowned engineers and gone down in history as the great brains and minds behind these designs. Where is the labor force? Who were the labor force? Because there were people that lost their lives in it. And so it's very easy to spray paint out information, especially if you're the one writing the history. And, and so in our education system, you know that uh, now people are almost campaigning to have certain parts of history taught in schools, which we shouldn't have to do because there are missing bits of information that changes the narrative. But we shouldn't be surprised again by that because if uh, we had colonialism, which uh, was really about a dominant nation around the world, then you're going to have the sort of teaching and emphasis that elevates that culture. And any power that is in the position of influence does the same. Babylon did it, the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, they all did that, Rome. Uh, and now we're looking at our history and we're seeing how it's, uh, parts of it have been almost removed or forgotten. But there is something else as well. We celebrate the intellect. We have, without thought, thinking about it, we have bought into the worship of self. Pretty much everything is about me. Everything. If I'm going to market a campaign, then I'm going to use marketing, which I think is quite an interesting subject. It manipulates the person who is on the other end to buy my product. It's about me. How do I get them to buy my things? How do I become wealthy at the expense of the other? It's all centered around me. So the intellect has become uh, almost central. 
to this. And of course, that self-worship, it's self-determination, whichever phrase you want to use. And that's the reason we're missing so much, because we're looking inward so much that we've forgotten that God is much bigger and wider, and he wants us to look outward and upward and say, okay, I don't know what the answers are to this. Can you tell me? It's very true what you've said, actually, about how we've missed a lot of history because of how the victors change the narrative and emphasise their part of the story for where they've won and conquered. True. And also how we are very much focused in on ourselves and our own little nuclear worlds that we don't even consider where some of the issues or the problems we're seeing now mm. have come about. And I think as a listener, reading through this book will really get you to question, even if you don't agree with everything written on the pages, it really will start to make you ask the bigger questions about where did this start? Why did this start? So, Valton, is there anything else you would want your readers to know about this chapter before we close off this episode today? Yeah, I know we've talked about race again. Um, I do emphasize that the book isn't purely about race, but it, it, it has to be in there because it's part of the story. Um, please bear in mind as well that the book is not just for those who say they believe in God, but it's for those who have questions about the world that we're living in and who God is. It's intended to remove the veil and to cause us to think again, even about some of the things that we've discussed today, to really think again, as you've already said, Renika, but it's questioning that. And why spend hours, days, months, and years studying a philosophy that at its very core is shown to be flawed? It's a complete waste of time. So for me, that's probably what I would say. And as we've said at the beginning of these podcasts, stick with the book. Don't don't uh, give up on it. Stay with it and make your conclusions at the end. Thank you so much for joining us today, Valton. You're welcome. Next episode, we will be looking into Chapter 4, The Evangelist. And if you enjoyed what you listened to today, but haven't purchased the book, the book is available on all major retailers such as Amazon and Waterstone. And having the book, I would definitely say, will help you engage even deeper and easier with these podcasts so we hope you can join us next time for the next episode of beside the author and have an amazing day thank you for listening <laughs>